Well, good evening. We're thankful again for your attendance as we were this morning. Uh, there may be a few who were not able to be with us this morning, but we're grateful that you're here tonight. As we have said quite often, not only for the time that we can spend together in worship to God, but also in a time of fellowship. And we're glad that you're here and we can enjoy that time. If you were with us on Wednesday night, we began uh, or had a lesson, I guess, in our study of the Sermon on the Mount on prayer. We talked for part of the class about prayer and we made mention even in that class about the fact that you could spend whole quarters of study, if you will, in our Bible classes on prayer. We were not trying to cover it all on Wednesday night, but we did have one question come up at the end of class and it was in such a way that I thought, well, as we are kind of taking a look at different things on Sunday night, trying to encourage ourselves with some various questions, it might be a chance for us, excuse me, a chance for us to consider uh, some questions that you may have. Now, I know lots of preachers who have a question and answer session once a month in the Sunday night sermon. Mentioned to you that we might do that in the coming months or years if you're interested in that. I've heard several preachers who do that say that they would never, uh, for various reasons, put their own questions or just make up questions for that. They usually want them submitted. And I try to let you guys know, you folks know, that at all times I'd be willing to take any questions you have. You can email me or send me a text message or uh, drop them in my office in some way if you'd like for them to to certainly be of a a private nature. But a lot of times when someone asks one question, other people have that same kind of question. Well, tonight, besides the one that came up at the end of our class Thursday night, or excuse me, Wednesday night, I did come up with the others. I had seen them asked at various occasions and other websites and things, and I also thought it might be something that would be encouraging uh, for us to consider and ultimately to know or try to determine what the Bible has to say about some of these things. It's funny because that occasion kind of came up in our car, our vehicle, our van on the way over. One of the kids asked from the back about, you know, if you were what the sermon was about or or something along those lines. And, and Hannah said, well, you know, he's going to, your daddy's going to answer questions, answer what the questions are on prayer. I said, no, the Bible's going to answer the questions on prayer. And I was messing with her. I was picking on her a little bit at that. Um, but and ultimately, you know, we need to be sure that we keep that to be the truth. One of the things or a couple of the things we're going to talk about tonight They're questions because people do not take what the Bible says, and they very often only take what the pastor or the preacher or a certain book has to say outside of the Bible. So I was being a little facetious with Hannah there, but I certainly always want to say, not only to remind you, but to remind myself that what we're after is what the Bible has to say about certain things. I'll tell you that I don't think that the answers that I give are the end-all, be-all. We can sometimes look at things different ways, but sometimes they can be quite helpful as we consider uh, certain things. First of all, if you have your Bible, you can be turning to the book of 2 Timothy. I'll go ahead and tell you up front in the PowerPoint tonight that I I did put the questions up there in case you don't have an outline or a bulletin in front of you, Uh, but I don't have much other information on the slide. So if you take notes, uh, you'll want to listen closely. I try to to speak a little slowly at times or repeat things uh, so that you can make notes if you'd like to, Uh, but there's not a whole lot of information on the slides tonight other than the questions for our purposes of remembrance. One of the questions that sometimes comes up about prayer is 2 Timothy chapter 1 Let's begin in verse 16 and read through verse 18. Paul would write, The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day, and you know very well how many ways he ministered to me. 
excuse me, minister to me at Ephesus. And the question is, does Paul's prayer here to, for Onesiphorus in 2 Timothy 1 provide Bible authority, which is what we're looking for, for praying for the dead? Some people seek to argue for this position. In fact, it's a, a theologians for the Roman Catholic Church will frequently appeal to this particular text in an attempt to establish their case for praying on behalf of the dead. Not only is there one certain group, though, that may do that, but it is spread out to other groups or denominations, other people who will look for evidence and try to find evidence to support this position in spite of a total lack of solid evidence for the case. In fact, if you were to look up, and I know sometimes when you get into uh, citing online sources, that's not always the best way, but the the Catholic encyclopedia that can be found online presents this particular discussion in one article. It goes like this. It says, "In in the second epistle to Timothy, St. Paul speaks of Onesiphorus in a way that seems obviously to imply that the latter was already dead. And then he quotes from the verse, or this article quotes from the verse, The Lord give mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, as to a family in need of consolation. Then, after mention of loyal services rendered by him to the imprisoned apostle at Rome, comes the prayer for Onesiphorus himself. The question is, what had become of him? Was he dead, as one would naturally infer from what St. Paul writes? And then they go on to ask several other questions or other, several other occasions that might be true. And then it ends by saying the first, the question that we read about what had become of him, was he dead? The first is by far the easiest and most natural hypothesis. And if it be admitted, we have here an instance of prayer by the apostle for the soul of a deceased benefactor. So in 2 Timothy chapter 1, there is a form of prayer. And again, we talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night. Um, Whether we we pray a specific prayer or go in a specific order, sometimes our prayers are very short. Maybe they're just a prayerful type thought. And so here there is a form of prayer on behalf of the family of Onesiphorus. And subsequently in verse 18, the apostle prays for Onesiphorus himself. And he petitions the Lord that this brother, his brother, might find mercy in that day, which is obviously the day of judgment. Now, another note about this particular passage. Because the verbs that you read, that we read there together, the verbs regarding the brother are all in the past tense. And since only his family is alluded to, some have assumed that Onesiphorus was dead. And so this is in a New Testament example of prayer on behalf of of the dead. Now there's also a reference to the apocryphal books that we sometimes mention, the books that are are not inspired, that are not included in the Bible. Uh, The second Maccabees, uh, two Maccabees is one of those that would allow an an Orthodox Jew to pray for the dead. So some people even refer to that to contend for this position. But let's consider a few responses. Number one, there is no concrete evidence at all that Onesiphorus was dead. The arguments for his demise or his death are all based upon inferences, none of which of those are necessary. If you were just to read this, there's no reason to think that he is dead. Number two, his actions are, that his actions are spoken of in the past tense is perfectly understandable since he was no longer in Rome. Can I give you a, a real-world example? The story I told of Hannah and I talking on the way here, that was past tense because now we're here. So it doesn't necessarily mean that that she's dead, or in that case, it doesn't mean that he was dead. 
And the fact that, and I didn't tell you this, but in chapter 4 and verse number 19, look over at chapter 4, verse 19 of 2 Timothy. Paul concludes the letter by saying, Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. The fact that Paul did not mention him in chapter 4 and verse 19 in sending greetings to those in Ephesus is not troubling if he's somewhere else. You know, why would I say to greet Brian's family if Brian is somewhere else for something else? And I would say send greetings to Brian's family. There would be a reason. He's not there, but not because he's dead. And the fact that Paul prayed for this brother is proof within itself that he was not dead since there is not a shred of evidence in the New Testament that prayers for the dead are acceptable. And it's very very important that we consider several of these things. All of those kind of point the way towards this, but it's helpful to consider all of these and a couple of others as we conclude this particular question. Uh, If Onesiphorus as a godly man was dead, if he was dead, there would be no need to petition God for mercy on his behalf. Think about that. For a person who is already dead, there is no need. If they're truly a a godly person, died as a faithful Christian, there would be no need to petition God for mercy on their behalf. They would already be the recipient of his mercy. And if Onesiphorus, in this particular case, died as an apostate, as a person who had fallen away, of which, of course, there's no evidence for that either, Paul's prayer for mercy would be worthless inasmuch as mercy will, will be bestowed on the basis of one's personal relationship with the Lord, not on that of another's actions. In fact, so if, Paul, if Onesiphorus is already dead and he had fallen away and was not faithful, he's not going to be saved because Paul said something on his behalf. That's not the way it works either. Moreover, the wicked dead cannot leave their place of torment and their punishment is eternal in duration. So it's interesting to consider that that prayer would be worthless either way for the dead because those who are faithful will have already received God's mercy as he prays for mercy here in verse number 18. Or if they are not faithful, then there's going to be no need for that because no prayer on our behalf can change that. These texts, these these particular sections in Paul's second epistle to Timothy do not come remotely close to providing the evidence for the validity of prayers for the dead. Now, this is one of those questions that I think you may have been looking at and going, I've never talked to anybody about this, and that's fine. But you may at one point or another. Certainly, you might read of someone doing something like this. And hopefully, even in just a couple of minutes tonight, a few short minutes, we can take a look at it and try to understand. I'm going to go past that question, maybe below the first question on your outline if you have your bulletin. But let's consider for just a moment, secondly tonight, is the sinner's prayer biblical? Is it biblical? Preachers often tell lost people that they need to pray the sinner's prayer. If you flip on the television, if you go to some radio programs, Many of those you'll hear the preacher or someone at the end say that a person simply needs to pray the sinner's prayer. Well, what is it? Is it biblical? And that may be something that would be beneficial for us to consider tonight. The so-called sinner's prayer is certainly popular. Again, it's certainly popular. I think about over the course of the last few weeks, I've been reading online on Facebook about people who have gone to Bible camp. Some of our kids have, have headed out this afternoon people who have already had their Bible camp for the summer, and they're speaking of young people who have become Christians. Now, how many they they had that were baptized, that put on Christ in baptism at camp, and how wonderful that is. And you see that number. 
then sometimes you see other events, other occasions, maybe a large-scale event, things that take place in places like Sevierville or Pigeon Forge, some of those larger youth events, and you'll hear some denominations lay claim to thousands upon thousands of young people, maybe who became Christians by praying the sinner's prayer. Well, what do we have to think about that? What does the Bible have to say about that? Well, ultimately, the sinner's prayer takes on several and various forms, depending on who you're talking to, all of which have the same general thrust. And here's one. Someone might say that you should pray this. Heavenly Father, I know that I am a sinner and that I deserve to go to hell. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I do now receive him as my Lord and personal Savior. I promise to serve you to the best of my ability. Please save me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when we consider what that prayer is, that's maybe a, a good thought and part of it, that you would submit to God, that you would make a commitment to God, that you would make a statement that you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Those are all true things, but there are a few problems in there in particular. Let's consider a few things. First of all, we think about Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 21. I think Jerry called it, his, the scariest section of scripture this morning in our Bible class in the auditorium. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 21. We said that it's a good thing to pray to God, to commit or submit to him, and to lay claim or to make the claim that I believe that Jesus died for my sins. But at the same time, Jesus also says in Matthew seven twenty-one, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Scripture makes it very clear that the mere act of calling out the Lord's name in an attempt to access divine mercy or God's mercy, to do that but in the absence of obedience is an exercise in futility. The Savior pointed out again in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? So one thing that we would point out here as we think about calling on the name of the Lord or saying the sinner's prayer is that we see Jesus himself say, saying Lord, Lord is not simply enough. Another thing that we might mention here is that prayer is for the child of God. Prayer is an avenue of communication between a child of God and his heavenly father. Do you remember if you were with us on Wednesday night, we talked about it in the auditorium here as we looked at Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 9. Jesus begins the model prayer by saying, Our Father in heaven. One becomes a child of God by means of the born again process. We think about John chapter 3 as Jesus speaks with Nicodemus there by night. John 3, 3 through 5, a person has to be born again, not simply pray. Now, I meant to look it up and I forgot, but it was at least probably over a year, year and a half ago that we had a lesson here on a Sunday morning, I believe, about does God hear the prayers of sinners? Um, but when we think about prayer, it is primarily, primarily for the child of God, an avenue by which a child of God can contact the Father and have communication that does not mean, of course, that maybe a person who is longing for God, that is seeking to be saved and trying to find exactly what to do, maybe even praying uh, to God, cannot be heard. But certainly a person who is living a life apart from God, in defiance of God, we would say their prayer is probably not heard. So again, that's a very brief introduction to that particular question. 
But when we think about the sinner's prayer, prayer is primarily for the child of God. Let's notice as well in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 11. And then we'll, we won't look there, but later in chapter 22, Paul, in telling, recounting this occasion, tells more about it. But in Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus prayed. How long did he pray? He prayed for three days. Saul of Tarsus prayed for three days after arriving in the city of Damascus, yet his sins were not washed away until he was immersed in water in obedience to the divine command. If ever, if ever there was a case for the sinner's prayer being exercised, surely this was it. Yet Saul, it didn't matter how many days, he could have spent more than three days praying but yet his prayers did not avail in removing his sins. He needed to be baptized. He needed to be immersed. And that was what happened, and his sins were surely washed away. The bottom line, of course, in a sense, is that the sentiments of this prayer are not found anywhere in the New Testament as it pertains to what we sometimes call an alien sinner, a person who is apart from God. The sentiments of this prayer are not found anywhere in the New Testament as it pertains to the alien sinner's responsibility under the law of Christ. Yes, if you want to open up your Bible and uh, cherry pick, as we say, one particular verse out, you might think that sounds nice. Lots of people would say, oh, it sounds good. You mean all I got to do is show up and sit in the audience and then just raise my hand and follow along with this prayer and that's all I have to do? Yeah, that sounds really good. But, of course, a careful study of the conversions in the book of Acts will reveal that not a single instance, not an end, not a single instance, is the lost sinner instructed or encouraged to simply pray for his or her salvation. On the other hand, honest souls are told exactly what they must do. And as we read all of those accounts of conversion, we see what a person must do including repenting and confessing and being baptized and those things that we usually put up here on the screen at each service to emphasize the importance of being gospel or biblically obedient. Is the sinner's prayer biblical? Well, this is one that you might sit down and have a conversation with someone about, and you might want to know more than simply the uh, six or seven or eight or so minutes that we just spent talking about it, but that is a little bit of a beginning, uh, beginning discussion there. Number three, do we have to pray in Jesus' name? Now, this is the question that came up at the end of our class Wednesday night, and we didn't have a chance to get into it, but it's possibly one that you have had before. Is it tradition, or is it Bible? Or do we have Bible authority that we end or mention in every prayer in Jesus' name? If you have your Bible, let's go to John chapter 14. We're going to look at John 14 and as well at John chapter 16 in just a moment. John 14 and John chapter 16. In John chapter 14, you're familiar with the, the statement, the discourse that Jesus gives here. He's about to be crucified. He has just washed the disciples' feet. And he is about to, to go to his crucifixion. And he's talking to them about their future prayers to him. And in John 14, in verse 14, he says, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. We go forward to John chapter 16 and verses 23 and 24. He continues on. And in that day you will ask me nothing. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Now, obviously, if we are praying in Jesus' name, it is a good practice for us to tell God that we are praying in Jesus' name. That doesn't mean that it is required for us to use this so-called formula. I don't know if that's the best way to describe it, but that's what some people would say. It's like a formula. You've got to be sure that you throw in Jesus' name in there or God won't hear it. So that's what some people would say, but that doesn't mean that it is required for us to use this formula in Jesus' name in order for God to hear our prayers. There isn't a prayer in the Bible, by the way. This is another interesting note that sometimes comes up as we study in depth these questions. There isn't a prayer in the Bible where someone uses this formula, per se. But it certainly is a good thing. So let's consider for just a second, what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Two things. Number one, praying in Jesus' name means to pray by his authority or according to his teaching. Do you remember in Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 17, we're so familiar with Colossians three sixteen that we so often quote about singing, about admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But at verse 17, Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or deed, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? We might say, first of all, it means to pray by his authority or according to his teaching. That's what it means when we say that. Number two, we might say that praying in Jesus' name means to pray through his mediation. To pray through his mediation. Do you remember in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 16? As the Hebrew writer is talking about Jesus being our high priest, he says, let us therefore come boldly, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How is it that we can pray boldly? We talked about this in our class Wednesday night, but we don't just get an audience with the president any old time we want. We can't even usually go talk to our congressman or congresswoman at any old time we want. But we can talk to the Father. And not only that, but the Hebrew writer says that we can approach him boldly. How is that? Well, it's because we pray in Jesus' name. And in praying in Jesus' name, number two, it means to pray through his mediation. We have the ability for God to hear our prayers as his children. Why or how? Because of what Jesus did on the cross. So when we're praying in Jesus' name, we're praying by his authority or his teaching, but number two, through his mediation as well. I mean, why is it that I say that we can't go talk to the president? Because in, in our southern language, we're a bunch of peons, right? I mean, nobody, the president's not going to want to hear from me. What makes me think that God the Father wants to hear from me? And yet I can approach him boldly. Come before his throne in prayer with my petitions, with anything. We joked about it again in our class Wednesday night. Do we pray that we can uh, do well on our test? Do we pray that we pass a particular you know, instance or something? That sounds silly to some people, but why is it that I can bring anything from someone who is dying and I want to pray on their behalf to someone else and something that seems trivial in my life? It's because I can do it through the mediator. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, 
Let me ask you this. We have to be careful when it comes to these questions that we not be so staunch maybe in what we've always done if it's not biblical. Is it okay to say that the prayer is in Jesus' name at the first? I would submit very possibly. Now, would that sound weird? Maybe to our ears. I was thinking about this a moment ago as we were getting ready to get, start, uh, get started. There, there's one story from my childhood that I'll always tell, and I was a little bit older. But my family and I visited a particular congregation, and uh, we were there like on, on summer vacation. And we were visiting this congregation, and I'll never forget, I was, I mean, I was maybe a preteen, just a, a young teenager, uh, maybe even that age. And my brothers and sisters were all even younger than that. And so we were at this congregation, and they got ready to end their service. The sermon's over, the invitation song is sung, and the song leader gets up, and he says, you know, we're glad that you're here. We're fixing to conclude our service. We are going to have our closing prayer and then the closing song. And we all thought, can they do that? Is that scriptural? Are you allowed to end with a song and not with the closing prayer? If we don't say in Jesus' name and then leave, is that okay? And it's always been humorous to us, and I just always think back to that. But obviously, the scripture does not give us an order for worship, that you sing two songs in a prayer and then three songs or, or whatever it is. It doesn't say that you have to close in prayer, although that may be a good practice. And I just simply give that as an illustration to say that, you know, yes, sometimes things seem funny to us. Now, if you go to a congregation and you're on vacation and they do something that you know is against scripture, then yeah, maybe you have a problem. But if it's something that's a little different than the way the Saudi Church of Christ chooses to do things or that you're then something that you're used to, maybe, just maybe, we need to be a little careful. And maybe, again, in this particular question, is it appropriate for us to do? Absolutely. Should we take comfort in being able to say, in the name of Jesus, absolutely. And it's something that we should be able to enjoy or we are able to enjoy because of what he did for us. Finally tonight, do we have to or should we, maybe the better way to say it here, lift holy hands when we pray? Let's go back to uh, the epistles to Timothy, this time 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 8. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So someone might say, does 1 Timothy 2, 8 mean that we should lift our hands upward when going to the Father in prayer? And how do we know exactly whether this is a tradition or something we should practice? Well, I think we would, and we touched on this, I think, Wednesday night for just a moment, but I think it's safe to say that a specific physical posture has never been a requirement for acceptable prayer. In fact, very quickly, let's go back to the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. To be one of those places. 1 Samuel chapter 1. And this is, of course, what we did touch on Wednesday night. The great example of Hannah as she is praying for Samuel. And she says... Oh, my Lord, as Eli is talking to her, as your soul lives, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. Her prayer was heard. She was granted Samuel. And, of course, that is a, a great occasion for us to remember, but it seems that she was standing. What about 1 Kings chapter 8? 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse number 54. Speaking of Solomon, 1 Kings 8, 54. And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to 
heaven. Now, those are not the only occasions. Sometimes people seem to be almost laying down. Uh, sometimes a person might uh, spread their hands out. Sometimes a person might lift their hands up. But neither the place, public or private, nor posture, seems to be a crucial element to prayer. When we talked about this on Wednesday night, that was the thrust of the lesson. It's not so much only about the location, because we know that public prayer is okay. We've already heard a, a wonderful one from our brother Joe tonight. So it's not just when you go into the closet. It's not just in public. It's not just when you're standing or just when you're seated or even kneeling. But at the same time, uh, we can do or we might pray in those different ways. The lifting up of hands as a gesture has been common in some cultures. It's been a way that some people may have prayed in some societies. You may have seen statues or monuments of people who had two uplifted hands in a sense. We know that we see the use of the hand a lot sometimes in scripture, being seated uh, at the right hand of God or hands that shed innocent blood in Proverbs chapter 6 that represent murderous people or from 1 Timothy, the lifting up of holy hands. So is there anything wrong with lifting hands in prayer? Well, ultimately, the answer intrinsically, there's nothing wrong with holding up hands in prayer. There's not. The lifting of hands doesn't seem to be demanded nor forbidden. And so what I would simply leave to you as we think about this particular question tonight is the idea of what we talked about Wednesday night. And if you were with us, that's great. If not, you may be able to go back and view it on our YouTube or Facebook page. But what is our purpose in prayer? Is it to be seen by men or is it to communicate with the Father? Not everybody, not everybody, but some people, when they lift their hands in prayer, they're doing it to be seen of men. Is that not the example that Jesus gives there as we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount? Those who would do it on the street corner, those who would do it in such a public fashion that they are able to be seen by men. And yes, even sometimes waving their arms in such a sense as to be seen by people. Should we lift holy hands when we pray? We might say, you may, but you should also be considerate of what you're doing or why you're doing it and that it's not to be seen by men because that's what Jesus, of course, is emphasizing in Matthew chapter 6 as we have talked about Matthew 6 the last few Wednesdays, doing things to be seen by others, not doing things as opposed to doing things in secret. Before we conclude tonight with this particular question, I wanted to mention one other question here that had come to my mind just in the last couple of days. And I, I just very brief answer. This is by no means in detail or lots of scripture to go with it. I hope that you and we are careful sometimes when we talk about uh, answered prayer or what happens when we pray. And I'll give you an example. You may have prayed for someone. We have paid, prayed for people from this congregation who have been healed in a sense, right? They have been in the hospital. They were very sick. We pray on their behalf, and then they get better. And we're thankful that God hears prayers and answers prayers. But even over the course of the last few days, there was a young family, a young man and woman, a guy who's a youth minister uh, here, or not here in this particular area, but in the area, who had a two-year-old daughter who woke up in the middle of the night, was crying, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, had a problem there at the home. They started doing CPR, called the ambulance. They took her to the hospital. She lived about a day or so, and then she passed away. 
And the caution that I would give you very briefly is, does that mean that those people's prayers on her behalf were not heard? Or does that mean that, that the faith of the people at Saudi are stronger on behalf of this person than those people who prayed on behalf of that little girl? And I see some of you nodding, shaking your heads in, in agreement or understanding. But I just think it's important because it's very easy sometimes when we think about prayer, that prayer and its answer are based on the will of God. They're based on the will of God, which goes beyond and above our understanding or comprehension. And since God's will is the link between prayer and the answer to prayer, it's often hard for us to simply say, well, this is, this is simply that and only that, we might say. Because when we go out on a limb, in a sense, and, and make statements such as that, it can really be hurtful to those who we prayed for as well that maybe didn't get better. And that's as, that's as simple of a definition or as a, a statement that I can give here. But I just want, to, want us to consider that as well. Because when you see somebody, even in our own number, who we have prayed so hard for here recently get better, we are thankful. We absolutely should be thankful. It's the will of God that they have gotten better. But I also think about this family and others, many other people besides just this one family who are hurting, who have loved God and served God, who are wanting to know why they didn't get a yes or their person wasn't saved. And it's not that their faith is not strong enough. But then we come back to what was the will of God in that particular instance. It goes back to providence in some ways. And we know that's a discussion we can't get into tonight. But what is God's providence in things? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Yes, no. It's all hard sometimes. But it would help us to consider that even as we think about our prayer life for just a moment. Those are a few questions. Maybe you thought about them. Maybe you hadn't. Maybe you have more difficult ones. But ultimately, we need to be people of prayer. As we said on Wednesday night, and we always talk about being people of prayer. How is your prayer life doing? Is it something you need to improve upon? And maybe even as we conclude our lesson tonight, as we think about the Lord's invitation, maybe part of the problem or maybe your prayer life is not so good because you look inwardly and you say, I know my life is not what it should be. And I know that I need to improve so that I can have communication as a child of God with the Father above. Of course, ultimately, that begins with becoming a child of God. Maybe you're here tonight, you've never put on Christ in baptism. Maybe you have questions about the sinner's prayer or something else we've said tonight. We would love, love the opportunity to study with you, even this evening or maybe in the coming days, to help us all understand exactly what the Bible has to say. Maybe you're here tonight and your prayer life's not the best. Maybe it's something else that is amiss that you would like forgiveness of, that you'd like to repent of, and would love for the congregation to pray with you and for you. Or maybe you're just struggling and you want to make that known so that we can encourage you. We will be singing to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.